Hey, good morning, faith family. I want to say hello to those that are gathered in our venue as well. Invite all of you, if you would, to turn uh, to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We finish uh, this morning a series we've been in uh, the last several weeks called Peculiar, uh, looking at what makes Christians different, what makes Christianity different. And uh, just a quick way of review for those of you that may be visiting with us today. Here's a kind of a quick summary of what we've looked at thus far. Uh, first of all, we talked about the fact that the Christian life is hard. Uh, this book is written out of a time of persecution. Uh, and yet Peter says to encourage Christians, we have a peculiar home. Our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We also have a peculiar hope. That is, uh, our story is a salvation story. And we have a good, good future that is ahead of us. But we're called now to a peculiar holiness. That is, we're set apart from the world to display him, be a witness for him in the world. Well, how do we do that? Well, he gives you areas. Number one, your submission to authority. Number two, how you suffer through adversity. Number three, how you continue to serve one another. That is the entire book uh, in a very simple summary of what we've looked at. This morning, uh, we conclude uh, kind of with a final command, and that is to stand firm. Notice this in 1 Peter chapter 5, and uh, beginning at verse 6. If you're able to stand, I'll ask you to please do so. It just as our way of, of being reminded every week that these words come to us with the very authority of God. Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 6. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanius, a faithful brother, as, regard, as I regard him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. Faith family, would you pray for me now? And would you pray with me as we ask God to speak to us? Uh, Father, we bow now before you, and we ask that uh, your spirit would come and work uh, in us and in this place. Uh, we are not here just to sing songs and hear a guy talk. We're, we're here to encounter you. We're here to worship you. Uh, we here say, we're here saying, God, come and teach me, transform me, change me through your word. So Holy Spirit, come and teach us all to the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. God's people said... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, it takes the phrase, a man's best friend, to an entirely different level. It was a story that I came across recently about a dog by the name of Capitan. Uh, here's a picture of him. He's a German shepherd dog uh, that became famous several years ago in Argentina uh, after his owner, uh, Miguel Guzman, died. According to an ABC News report, uh, shortly after Miguel's death, uh, Veronica, his wife, noticed that the dog had gone missing. 
And so her and her son searched everywhere to try to find him, uh, but they couldn't. And they searched for quite some time, and finally they just concluded, well, he probably got run over, uh, somebody stole him, but they finally stopped looking. Then a few days later, they went to uh, visit Miguel's graveside, and there at the cemetery was Capitan. And they were thrilled. They were excited. They were so excited to be able to see their dog. And so they finished their visit there at the cemetery, and then they took him home. And then he ran away. And sure enough, they found him again roaming the cemetery. And so they took him home. And he ran away. And this kept going on and on and on and on until finally the cemetery workers at the graveyard said, uh, we would be happy to let him stay here. We will take care of him. We will feed him. And we'll just let him stay in the cemetery. And Veronica and her son agreed. Now what blew my mind as I read this report was what the cemetery worker said about this dog. Here's what he said, quote, The dog will roam around the cemetery during the day, but every night by 6 p.m. he takes his place beside his master's grave. And he stays there all night long. He has done this for six straight years. And we're convinced he'll probably never leave. Now, i got to be honest with you. I was gripped by that. I don't know if you're gripped by that, but I was gripped by that. And at first, I thought, maybe it's just because I love dogs. If you know me, you know I've had dogs all my life. I've got two dogs right now, uh, a lab named Boaz. Yes, it's true. Some of you, we affectionately call him Bohunk. Some of you get that joke, right? Uh, I've got a dog named Luther. I love dogs. Uh, also, if you know me, uh, you know that I have professionally trained dogs before. Uh, and so I'm rather impressed by this story. But, but I got to thinking about this. The reason why I'm gripped by that story is not because I love dogs. It goes much deeper than that. It's that, that picture, that image, look at it again, of Capitan sitting there at his master's grave for six straight years. It's an imagery of loyalty, of faithfulness, of unwavering commitment. And I thought, you know, we honor that not just in our pets. That's something we honor in all areas of life, isn't it? Like the employee that is faithful to the company. The couple celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. The fan base that's loyal through the losing seasons. <laughs> hypothetically, of course. That friend that stood by you in the hardest of times. As we honor Memorial Day weekend, that soldier that refused to leave another man behind. That Christian that holds to his or her convictions no matter what the pressure may be. Right here, Faith, I'm saying that within us, all of us have this sense of honor towards that which is unwavering. Something, and I'm not talking about being stubborn, I'm talking about being steadfast and standing firm. Right here. That's exactly the kind of Christian the Bible has called us to be. And it is exactly how the Apostle Peter 
ends this letter. Look at it again in verse 12. By Sylvanius, a faithful, committed, loyal, unwavering brother as I regard him. I've written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Underline this in your Bibles. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in the grace of God. What is the purpose of this letter? Why is Peter writing this book? He is writing this to Christians that are persecuted to say, stand firm. Do not leave your master's cross. Do not leave your master's empty grave. The position of a peculiar Christian is standing firm. You even see it, for instance, in verse 9. Resist him, that is the devil, firm in your faith. He is writing to encourage them to stand firm. Yes, you will hurt. Yes, you will weep. Yes, they will say things about you. Yes, yes, yes. But you will not be moved. You will not be shaken. You will not retreat. You will not fall back. You will stand firm, Christian. And of course, Peter is putting this at the end of the book because it's a way of summarizing what he said. Do you remember all these contexts? When your boss is a jerk, when politicians are corrupt, when your love is stretched, when evil is committed against you, when your spouse is not acting the way he or she should, when everyone is living in debauchery, when you're called to suffer for his name's sake. All of those things we've seen in the book, he's saying, in those situations... The position you are called to is to stand firm. And I can't help but preach this and think about that famous quote in church history. You know, I love church history. 1521, Martin Luther is standing before Charles V, the Diet of Worms. He's being asked to recant everything he's written, everything he's taught about the gospel, and they're asking him to back down. And here's what Luther says, quote, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by reason. For I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear they have erred repeatedly. No, no, no. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot and I will not. Recant. Because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. And yes, it is debated if this last phrase was included. But here I stand. I can do no other God help me. Is that you, Christian? Christian, I'm talking to you. Is that your position? Are you saying, I am captivated by the Word of God? I cannot do anything but stand on God's Word. That's the position that Peter wants these Christians to make. And you say, I want to be that kind of Christian. I want to do that, but I don't know how. Well, he tells you, look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ... 
He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Uh, Peter, Peter does at the end the very thing he does at the beginning. Do you remember in, in chapter 1 when he says, Blessed be our God and Father, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Oh, we have an inheritance that is unperishable, unfading. It's kept for us in heaven. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials. They're bookends to the letter. Namely, how do you stand firm in your suffering and your circumstance? You do it with an absolute certainty of your future. Your eternal hope is what grounds you now. Uh, think of it this way. Notice on the screen, faith's stability is the byproduct of hope's certainty. That is, you're able, standing firm is doable now if you're convinced what your future will be. Like the great old hymn, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Why? Because he's going to come with trumpet sound. And then in him I will be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Say it with me if you know it. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Your firm, rock-solid faith is because your hope is based on the solid rock. A faith that is solid like a rock has its hope on and in the solid rock of Christ Jesus. Amen, Christian? Is that your position today? Standing firm, rock-solid. Some of you are like, it's about time he preached this message. I've been waiting for this one. Like, come on, let's get our, our Bibles and our swords and our convictions, and we're going to go boycott the world for Jesus. You know those kind of Christians, right? Yeah, man, let's fight. Let's stand up. I hear what you're saying, preacher. Let's do this. But, 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 but listen, Peter doesn't just explain the position of a Christian. He explains the posture of a Christian. That is, how do you stand? Now, we'll unpack this more later, but in verse 3, he tells the elders not to be domineering over those that, are in charge, that they are in charge of. In verse 5, he says, clothe yourselves with humility. In verse 6, he says, humble yourselves. So the theme of the text is humility. So here's the point that you need to get. You need to jot this down right here. The life of stability preach preacher, is expressed by humility. It's a great place for an amen. The life of stability, firmness, gets expressed how? Through humility. By being humble. Not by standing up and saying, I'm going to fight back and, and beat everybody. This. No, 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 no. You stand firm in what you believe, but you do it in a humble way. And Peter addresses two groups specifically in doing this. The first is leaders. Here's what he says. First, leaders, I want you to be humble in your position. I want you to be humble in your position. Let me show you it in the text, starting at verse 1. 
Uh, I exhort you, I exhort the elders among you, that is the church leaders as a fellow elder, witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. So shepherd, which is kind of where we get the idea of pastor. Pastor and elder are the same thing. It's the same position. An elder is one who shepherds or one who pastors. Uh, Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not, here's the phrase, domineering over those in your charge, uh, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, the ultimate elder appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Now, don't check out. You say, I'm not an elder, so this won't apply to me. I'll snooze for the next few minutes and then catch him on the backside. All right. Uh, No, here's why you can't snooze and check out on me, because I need you to hear this. What Peter says in those verses is not exclusively for elders. It's just specifically for elders. Are you tracking with me? In other words, there are lessons in what he has just said for anybody in any kind of leadership or any kind of position. It may be a coach. It may be a teacher. It may be a parent. It may be um, an older sibling. It may be a boss. But of course, it especially applies to Christian leaders. In other words, this is a good thing for all leaders, but certainly leaders in the church. Do you see? So you can't zone out. No nap time. So think about the position you have. What is it? And you probably have one. Again, it's in your family, at your work, whatever it is. How, how are you to be humble in your position? Well, clearly a humble leader is someone that is soft-spoken, very, very mild, calm, and has no passion at all. And I model that for you every week. I don't know why you're laughing. But isn't that how we, in seriousness, isn't that how we typically think about humble leaders? They're so kind and just compassionate. They don't ever raise their voice. They're just so, yes, I love you, sweetheart. You know, just just very, very calm. Because Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the ultimate elder. And this is how we think of him. I mean, that's shepherd leadership right there. It's so sweet. And pretty and precious moment like. Because we, I mean, we certainly remember how Jesus acted that way in Matthew 21 as he comes in on a donkey. And this is what he does next, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple, drove out all that sold and bought in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats who sold pigeons. And he said uh, to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus walks into the temple, turns over tables, birds are flying while quoting the Old Testament, (laughs) which seems to me a lot more like angry street preacher than it does mild, meek Jesus, precious little shepherd leader. Sweet little money changers, I love you, right? That's not... It's not, it's not the picture of, of humble leadership. Or what about it in the comforting words of Matthew chapter 23 and verse 25 to the Pharisees? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you clean out the cup and the plate, but inside it's full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 
You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. You outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Just one more because I'm having fun. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus, meek and mild, Shepherd leadership right here. Precious little lamb. You're going to hell, you little lamb. <laughs> You're a hypocrite, you little lamb. I mean, that, isn't that humble leadership, right? Just very soft-spoken, very mild. I'll give you one more because you might say, well, well, the money changers deserve it and, and the Pharisees certainly deserve it. But he spoke differently when it came to his own disciples. You're exactly right. Like how he spoke to the very author of our book. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Really? Get behind me, Satan? If you want to feel the weight of this, here's a little exercise for you to do. All right, here you go. Husbands, <laughs> the next time your wife says something to you that you that disagrees with you, I want you to look at her and say this, get behind me, Hitler. And then I want you to email me and tell me how that worked out because it's probably going to go a little something like that. It's not going to go well, I promise you. Now, if you're tracking with me, what I'm trying to say here is tables are turned over. Jewish leaders called hypocrites on their way to hell. His very closest disciple and author of our book calls Satan, get behind me. And all the while, Jesus says of himself, come to me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. My point is simply this, right here, right here, right here. Humility does not mean passivity. You can be very bold, very uh, convicted, very passionate, and be a humble leader. So what is a humble leader? Are you ready? A humble leader is a leader that does not take advantage of the position they have. They don't use their parenting as leverage. They don't use the fact that they're the coach, that they're the pastor, that they're the older sibling, that they've been in the church longer. They don't use whatever position it is they have as leverage over anybody else. Let me prove it to you in Jesus, the chief shepherd. That is, they don't domineer over others. Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7 says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he is God. He doesn't count equality a thing to be grasped. That is, he doesn't take advantage of it, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. And this is what Jesus taught Peter and his disciples when they're arguing over who gets the best seat at the table. Mark chapter 10, verse 42, he says, Jesus called him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Do you see it? And the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. Whoever is to be great among you must be your servant. So how are you to be humble as a leader? It means this, whatever your position is, pastor, parent, spouse, older sibling, coach, whatever, you don't use that position as an advantage. You use that position as an opportunity to serve others that God has given you 
to serve. Leaders, be humble with your position. Stand firm in the posture of humility. But then here's the second group. It's not just with leaders, it's to everybody. Look, for instance, at verse 5 and pick it back up. Verse 5 says, um, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Watch, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Why? For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So leaders, be humble with your position. Ready? Everybody, everybody be humble on purpose. That is this. This is big. This is big. This is big. You can be prideful on accident, but you will only be humble on purpose. You can be prideful by accident. You will only be humble on purpose. That is, listen, listen, humility is a choice. You have to daily choose to pursue humility. You say, where are you getting this from? I'm getting this from the idea that Peter brings up here of clothing yourself in humility. So think about this. The idea that you have a closet, you have a wardrobe, and you intentionally pick out your clothing based on the situation, right? So, for instance, if it's really, really cold outside, like it often gets here in Minnesota, you've got a jacket. You've got a coat that you wear because the conditions are cold and you're going to dress appropriately. Or maybe you're going to go on vacation to the beach and you pull out one of those god-awful Hawaiian shirts, right? You know, you know the kind, yeah, that comes with the fanny pack? Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and like the strap sandals, it's like one entire outfit. And you put that on because you're going on vacation. You're going to go to Hawaii. You're going to go to the beach. That's appropriate. Or maybe, for instance, it's bedtime. And some of you bust out the PJs because it's appropriate to wear your pajamas when you go to bed. Not so much appropriate to wear that maybe to work, right, or church, but it's appropriate at at bedtime. Or what about, for instance, you're going to go to a, a Twins game. Okay, you, you, it would be appropriate for you to dress accordingly and put on something as a Twins fan, right? Last one, let's say maybe it's raining outside and uh, you put on a, a poncho or some type of a rain uh, jacket or something like that. In other words, is everybody following me? You already do in your life uh, an intentional type of dressing, That is, here's what the weather's going to be, here's what the occasion's going to be, here's what the situation I'll be in's going to be, therefore I need to dress accordingly. You make an intentional choice as to what you're going to wear. I need everybody right here. I need everybody right here. If you know that God opposes the proud, then you had better dress accordingly. If you know that God opposes the proud, then you have to dress accordingly, which raises the question, then how do we clothe ourselves with humility? How do we put on the things that will help us be humble? Anybody want to know that? I'm going to give you four articles of clothing that you've got to wear, all right? We're going shopping this morning. We're putting on a new wardrobe this morning because we want to be humble before God. That's our posture that we've been called to. 
So here are the four items, the four uh, pieces of clothing you've got to wear. And for you visual learners, you're going to love this. You'll never forget this passage. Here we go. The first is you've got to have a really, really big view of God. I'm stealing all of this from the text, if you're wondering. Humble yourself, say it with me if you know it, under the mighty hand of God. You've got to have an awareness of His majesty, an awareness of His might, an awareness of His power, an awareness of His, holy, and His holiness and His glory. You see, here's what I mean. Oh, oh, come on, come on, come on, listen, listen. You can't have a proper view of God and a prideful view of self. It's impossible. In Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the glory of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what is Isaiah's response? It's not, that's really cool. No, it's woe is me. Woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips. We're a people of unclean lips. What humility came natural when he understood God. It's, it's very hard to be prideful when you're standing in the middle of glory. Right? So do you want to be clothed for humility? I hope you do. Because God opposes the proud. Then you've got to put on a big view of God. Let your mind swim in the deep end of the pool of God's glory. Here's the second item you got to put on if you're going to clothe yourself in humility. And that is, you've got to think not like the culture, but you've got to think like the kingdom. And you say, where in the world are you getting this in the text? Well, the very next phrase, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Next phrase, look at it in your Bibles, uh, so that he will exalt you at the proper time. Do you see that? Now, what's Peter saying? Let me explain what Peter means, and then I'll show you where he's stealing it from. You ready? What Peter is simply saying is this. You're humble now. You'll be exalted later. The Roman culture is saying you don't matter. The Roman culture would love to sniff you out. The Roman culture thinks you're crazy for following a crucified man. But what they don't know is that you will be exalted when Jesus comes. Now, where is Peter stealing that from? Tell me if you've heard this one. You ready? The last will be first. And the first will be last. Peter is simply restating in a different way what Jesus has already taught about the kingdom of God. Now here's the problem. Faith family, come here. Here's the problem. The retail stores of America only sell the color pride. Because you look good in it, sweetheart. Imagine your name in lights. Imagine everybody applauding for you. Imagine everybody thinking you're kind of a big deal. Imagine yourself in all your glory. I can sell you some of that. Oh, don't make any mistake at all. Sex doesn't sell. Self sells. And we have all kinds of stores throughout our culture ready to dress you in pride. And you've got to think kingdom, not culture. 
You need to go back and like read the Beatitudes every single day or the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Do you want to be clothed in humility? Do you? Have a big view of God and keep your mind on His kingdom and not the culture and what it's teaching you. Here's the third item of clothing you got to have, taking it right from the text, and that is prayer. Prayer. The very next phrase is what? Look at it in your Bibles. It is humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, big view of God and His might. Uh, You'll be exalted at the proper time. The last are going to be first. That's the kingdom. And then casting your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. That is, you pray. You cast your burden. You lay down your weight. You lay down your struggle. You've heard me say this before. I'm going to say it again and we're going to put it on the screen in case you've, you've not heard this. I want you to jot it down. Pride is what you have when you are the king. Prayer is what you do when you need a king. Do you understand, faith family, that the very act of prayer is an act of humility? Why? Because you're saying, I don't have this. I can't do this. I'm not strong enough. God, are you ready? I know, hard to say. I need help. I can't carry this burden alone. I can't carry this weight. I'm not, I'm not strong enough to do this. God, help, help, help. I'm casting my burden. I'm casting my anxieties on you. I know that you care for me. What are you doing? You're expressing humility. You want to know what's destroying your prayer life? It's really easy. It's really easy. It's one word. Pride. That's what's destroying your prayer life. You won't pray in front of others. You won't pray in this situation. You don't pray at all. Why? Pride. Because fundamentally, whether you know it or not, you think you can do it on your own. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God knowing that He will exalt you, the last are going to be first, and casting your anxieties on Him. And here's the last uh, article of clothing uh, that's being clothed in humility. Uh, Verse 10 and verse 12 speak about the God of grace. The God of grace. What does grace have to do with humility? Answer, everything. But at least two things. You ready? You ready? Come here. Grace reveals, number one, who you are apart from Jesus and why you can't boast in yourself. Grace tells me that I was so sinful, God had to die. That's pretty big, right? Like, my situation was so bad, so dire, so uh, 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 difficult that God had to come and die for me. There was no other way out. So there's no way I'm going to be able to boast in who I am. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, When I have a true view of my sinfulness, I am led to see that there must be an absence of pride. The man that is truly humble is one who is amazed that God... And man could think of him as they do. (laughs) This is my performance evaluation. If only they knew it's a lot worse than this. You're not deceived about yourself when you understand grace. And you say, well, if I really believe that, I would just be despairing. No, you weren't. Not if you're a Christian. Not if you understand grace. Because the second side of the coin of grace is this. 
Grace reveals not just who you are apart from Jesus, and therefore you don't have anything to boast in. It reveals who you are in Jesus, so you have every reason to boast in Him. You're a child of God. You were so bad off. God had to die for you, and you're so incredibly loved. He joyfully died for you. He loves you incredibly. And then you realize it's not my righteousness, it's clearly His, so I boast, I brag, not in me, but in Jesus. A.W. Tozer says it this way, this is so good, listen, listen. The humble, the humble may be in his moral life as bold as a lion, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. It's so good. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God declared him to be, but listen, listen, listen. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time he is in the sight of God of more importance than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. Hallelujah. When you really understand grace, you can't be prideful. You don't despair. In fact, I say it this way. You can be really, really honest and secure at the same time. Let me put it on the screen. Grace allows you to be honest about who you are without Jesus and secure in who you are in Jesus. Faith family, I need you to look here. Venue, you can't dress this way and be prideful. It's impossible. God thinks this looks good. This looks, this is sharp. And by the way, just a quick little footnote that no other service got, just for you. All right, here we go. A godly woman thinks a man that looks like this is really attractive. And a godly man thinks a woman that looks like this is really attractive. Their position is firm. But their posture is humble. Now, why does all this matter? I'm going to wrap it up with this question. You ready? Look, look here. Why is humility essential to stand firm? Or to say it another way, why you will not stand firm if you don't clothe yourself in humility? Let me read the verses and then I'll give you the answer. Verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You ready? Here it is. Why is humility essential to standing firm? Or you won't stand firm unless you're humble. Here's my answer. Satan prowls around looking for the prideful. Why? Because they're easy prey. It's an easy destruction. Because they already want what he wants, which is anything but the glory of God. 
And so he is prowling around like, I'm going to find that one who's dressed in pride. And I will eat them alive. The key to victory, Christian, is being clothed in humility. It has everything to do with your perseverance. Of your standing firm in the posture of humility. That's when you experience the ultimate victory. Uh, let me bring it all together like this. One of my favorite movies is the movie 42. Uh, many of you have seen it. The story of Jackie Robinson, the first African-American baseball player in professional baseball. There's a scene in the movie where he is offered the opportunity to come and play for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And the owner knows that this is going to cause a whole lot of persecution, a lot of difficulty, a lot of challenges. And what he teaches Jackie is this. He teaches him that the path of victory will be the path of humility. Take a look. Try it out here with the Dodgers, with the white Brooklyn Dodgers. I'll pay you $600 a month and a $3,500 bonus when you sign the contract. Is that agreeable? Yes, that's fine. There's one condition. I know you can hit behind the runner, that you can read a pitch. One question is, can you control your temper? My temper? Yes, your temper. What are you, deaf? A black man in white baseball. <laughs> Can you imagine the reaction? The vitriol? Dodgers check into a hotel, a, a, a decent, good hotel. You're worn out from the road. Some clerk won't give you the pen to sign in with. We got no room for you, boy. Not even down in the coal bin where you belong. Team stops at a restaurant. Waiter won't take your order. What are you going to do then? Fight him? Ruin all my plans? You want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back? No. No. I want a player who's got the guts not to fight back. People aren't going to like this. They're going to do anything to get you to react. Echo a curse with a curse, and they'll, they'll hear only yours. Follow a blow with a blow, and they'll say the Negro lost his temper, that the Negro does not belong. Your enemy will be out in force, and you cannot meet him on his own low ground. Peter, they're persecuting us because we're Christians. My employer's mistreating me. Unbelievers are maligning me because I don't live the way they live. My spouse is not living up to their responsibilities. Are you telling me, Peter, that you want a Christian who doesn't have the guts to fight back? No. No. I'm telling you, I want you to be the kind of Christian who has the guts not to fight back. Because your 
enemy is on the prowl. And you cannot meet him on his own ground. Faith family, stand firm. Stand firm by clothing yourself in humility, knowing, being assured and confident that from that is coming a day of glorious victory. That's what Peter is saying. And where do you think he learned that? I'll tell you where he learned that. By watching firsthand a man who stood firm in his suffering. A man who knew what it was like to get low and die the most humiliating death there was. All the while, assured and convinced of a glorious victory three days later. Oh, we are a peculiar people. And therefore, no matter what we face, no matter the circumstances of this life or this world, we will stand firm on our master's empty grave. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Pray with me, pray with me. Oh God, that we would clap with our hands and rejoice with our hearts. A people that stand firm on your word, stand firm in your grace, stand firm on your gospel. But we do that with humility. We do that not because we are in any way to boast in ourselves, but to be all about your glory, your witness, your light in this world. Our position is secure. It's on the solid rock. Our posture is humble because we have an enemy who wants to meet us at the point of pride just like he did so long ago in the garden and bring destruction. We will stand humbly knowing that victory is coming. Oh, that glorious day. And because of that, we march on. In Jesus' name, amen.